This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings to the June episode, listeners. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson, and I'm joined on the podcast today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, we'll be talking to co-presenter of the Sky at Night, Chris Lintot, about his thoughts on SpaceX Starlink mega constellation and what makes looking up at the night sky so important. And we'll tell you our top stargazing tips to see in the month's night sky. First, though, we're going to take a look at what we found out while putting together the June issue of Sky at Night magazine. Uh, specifically, we're going to be taking a closer look at the planet Venus. Yes, that's right, because... Really, since even before Christmas, it's it's just been an amazing object in the night sky. Venus, hasn't it? Even mm. just with the naked eye. And lots of Absolutely. people who I speak to, friends and family, have also noticed it too. And it's been trending on Twitter and all sorts of things. It's, it's just been amazing, hasn't it? It has been. It's definitely one of those things that I've been trying to spend more time in my garden because um, it's the only place I can go outside. Uh, and... Just occasionally I'll look up at like about seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night and suddenly see this thing over really brightly over in the horizon and, you know, not even looking for it. And it's always just there. It's just very apparent, um, especially when it's been like near the crescent moon. That's it's a particularly striking, striking sight when you've got the crescent moon just rising and then this bright point of Venus quite close to it. Yeah, I think it was um, early December last year. I was... Um in my car, was driving, driving along the, the, the street. And um, I, I looked up and it, there was a, a conjunction of Venus and the crescent moon. And I had to actually remind myself that I was driving because I was just so taken aback <laughs> by it. 
that I was just staring at it. And it's like, oh, Ian, you're driving. Come on, pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you get a nice, clear, dark night and you see those two together, it's absolutely beautiful. There's also, I mean, it, it, it's known as the evening star um, when it's when it's appearing like like it has been for the past few months. And it's also something that we've received a few messages on Facebook and Twitter asking us, you know, um, last night, all I could see was this one amazing bright star in the night sky. What is it? I think, you know, there were, there were a few people who didn't realize that it was actually a planet. So it's, it was also quite mm. nice um, being able to pass that information on to people and, and say that's you're, you're actually looking at a planet. Yeah. It's it's definitely one of those ones that even if you're not looking up at the night sky explicitly, it will catch your eye and and draw your attention. Um, and it's it's quite obvious to me why so many people have you know written about the evening star and <laughs> why it's become such a, a a kind of cultural thing. So I thought it was maybe worth talking a bit about the the geometry of Venus and the Sun and Earth in terms of where they line up on Earth and Venus's orbit and why this has led to such an amazing view of the planet Venus. Um, So Venus is known as an inferior planet, um, which means that its orbit is smaller than Earth's around the sun. So it's closer to the sun than Earth is. Um, I've always thought it was a bit of a mean name, calling it an inferior planet. (laughs) Yeah, and and all the superior planets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, And as a result of its orbit, it appears to us in different positions in the night sky, which, which makes sense when you think about it. An alignment known as superior conjunction, Venus is lined up with Earth and the Sun, with the Sun in the middle, so Venus on the opposite side of the Sun to Earth. And after this stage, Venus begins to emerge in its orbit from behind the Sun's glare uh, into the evening sky. And as the days and weeks pass, Venus gets closer to Earth uh, and starts appearing as a bright object seen after sunset. And this is what's been happening over the past few months and why it's looked so amazing in the night sky and why it's... um, you know, as we've said, been been doing the rounds on social media, why people have been talking about it. Um, and as that orbit continues, when the Earth-Sun-Venus lineup reaches 90 degrees, if we observe Venus through a telescope, we can actually see it as a 50% lit phase because it has phases just like the Moon. Um, mm. And as the planet begins to swing around the part of its orbit that's closest to Earth, this causes the phase of Venus to decrease, so it becomes a thinner and thinner crescent, again, just, just as the Moon does. Um but it also appears bigger in the evening sky. I, I always get surprised when I remember that you can, the planets, the interior planets have phases. In fact, most of them have some degree of phase because you're so used to seeing these pictures from um, the various space telescopes and orbital missions and things like that, that you forget that actually it's it's just like the moon, it's just like any other planetary body and it's just as affected by the sunshine and everything. And it, it's that kind of dynamicism that reminds you that it, it's part of the solar system and it, it's just as much as, you know, that, that kind of whole solar dynamic thing going on, which is one of the reasons why I love astronomy is looking up and being able to, to see that even though the stars seem to remain constant, there are things changing and moving around all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also something that people, when they're starting getting into stargazing, it's one of the first things you notice is the position of the moon and this, the what phase it's at relative to the the setting sun. If if the moon is appearing in the in the evening sky, you can see the lit um, part of the moon, and you can see the sun having just set in the in that in the direction that makes it obvious that the that the moon would be lit. And I think it sounds quite um, obvious to 
two people who are really into astronomy, but it's, I think <laughs> it's something that, you know, the, the, the phases and the, and the stages of, of the moon uh, and, and their relation to the sun, I think is some, something that doesn't naturally occur to a lot of people. And it's something that you really, which mm. just blows your mind whenever you, you first realize that. Um, but yeah, so what, what then happens with uh, Venus's orbit is um, it eventually lines up with the sun on the Earth side of its orbit. And this is known as inferior conjunction. So we've got superior conjunction when it's on the opposite side of the sun to Earth and then inferior conjunction when it's on the same side and it lines up um, on the Earth side of its of its orbit around the sun. And this is due to happen on the 3rd of June. And this is when the planet will begin its transition from an evening object to a morning object. Um, and it's also worth noting Venus normally passes north or south of the sun when, when this happens uh, relative to how we see it from Earth. But when it passes right in front of the solar disk, we call it a transit of Venus. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a bit like the moon in a solar eclipse, really, isn't it? Just kind of passing through, passing in front of the sun. Yes, Earth. it's it's just a it's a very very far away eclipse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it appears much smaller. Um, uh, those are those are relatively rare. Um, they they come in sort of batches. I think there's they sort of several close together, and then there's a gap of a couple of decades before the next one comes along and i think we're unfortunately in the gap at the moment so it's going to be a while before we see another venus transit yeah exactly that so the last one was 2012 i'm sure there's lots of people who will have um, made, made an effort to see that weather weather depending uh, but the next mm. one's not going to happen until 2117 so yeah that's quite a long wait yes, um yeah. don't think it's i'll be, be waiting for that one <laughs> ages um um but yeah, I I think potentially because it's it's so easily seen in the night sky and because it's so such a, such a beautiful um, object to to view through a telescope, that's perhaps the reason why there's so much. Um, I don't know. I suppose it's sort of like myth and an intrigue about Venus. Um, there were mm. two two sort of phenomena that I wanted to to bring up um, just out of interest. So the first one is the Schroeder effect which is we've spoken about that geometry of Venus and the Sun and Earth. Um, and that's the Schroeder effect is when that geometry doesn't actually match what's what's observed. So the 50% lit phase of Venus um, appears a few days earlier than it should, according to calculations. Uh, and no one's really explained why. The other one is the, the ashen light, which was uh, first, supposedly first seen by the 17th century Italian astronomer Giovanni Riccioli, he noticed that the, the dark disk of the planet, so the bit that wasn't lit by the sun, appeared to be glowing with a faint greyish light. And this is something that's been observed um, by people like Sir William Herschel and even the, the NASA planetary scientist Dale Cruikshank observed it in the early 1960s, apparently. And Patrick Muir as well. There's a, Patrick Muir um, observed mm. it and made a sketch of it, um, but no one's ever captured an image of it. But um, yeah, uh, and, and also no one's ever been able to explain what it was, although uh, the 18th century German astronomer Franz von Paula Grothusen um, believed the light might have been caused by fireworks uh, of the Venusians celebrating the ascension of a new emperor. So um, <laughs> that's, that's one theory, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Venus has always had that kind of that mystery and allure to it, because in some respects, it's as a planet, very similar to Earth um, when you're just looking from it afar anyway. Uh, so it's about 0.95 times the the width of Earth. Um, it's about 12,000 kilometers across. Um, it weighs 1, 
times the mass of Earth, so it's around about the same mass as well. Um, but it's all it's it's much closer. It's only 0.7 AU out. Um, so AU is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So it's about you know 70% of the way between Sun and Earth. Um, and so for, for many, many years, people thought, oh, well, Venus must be a second Earth. Um, it's warmer, so it's probably more going to be tropical. Um, uh, <laughs> this, this, And people could see that it appeared to be a cloudy planet. Um, so a lot of people thought it was going to be this, you know, rainforest covered world um, with beautiful Venusians, because aliens are always terribly beautiful. Um <laughs> And the truth is not quite that. <laughs> so the, the first sort of hint that people started getting that there might be more to what's going on in Venus, that it might not be this kind of second Earth, was in the, the 1950s and 1960s. And that's when people could start taking infrared and ultraviolet observations of the planet. Um, and uh, this this began to show that, oh, maybe the planet's a bit, hotter than we thought it was. Um, it was about this time they got the first measurements of, of Venus's rotation. Um, so each day, each Venusian day is about 117 Earth days and each year is about 225 Earth days. So it's... it The one side of the, the planet is facing the sun for a very long time and that means you're going to get like really high temperatures on it. Um, but exactly how high the temperatures were, they didn't actually work out until they started sending the first missions there. Um, the first mission to actually reach Venus was a Soviet mission called Venera 3, and that crash landed on the 1st of March uh, 1966. Unfortunately, it wasn't transmitting at the time, so we didn't get any, they didn't get any information from that. Um, Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. The the Soviets claimed that that, that Venera 3 and uh, its follow-on mission, Venera 4, were the first ones to reach the surface intact, despite the fact that they had no proof that this had actually happened. Um, <laughs> and then the Americans came along in 1967, a year later, uh, with their spacecraft Mariner 5 and said they, they measured what they thought the pressure on the planet would be. Um, and people were expecting it to be around about Earth temperature, um, Earth pressure, considering it was about the size of Earth. Um, 
the Mariner 5 measured it being somewhere between 75 and 100 atmospheres. So that's an air pressure of about the same as about 100 metres underwater. Yeah, I'd read um, somewhere somewhere on, on the NASA website that the pressure of Venus is enough to crush a submarine. <laughs> yeah, um, it's actually the when when the Soviets discovered how high this pressure was uh, from Venera 5's findings, they actually brought on submarine engineers to tell them how to manufacture the next round of Venera probes. Um, and these ones could actually withstand up to about, uh, I think it was 150, because um, they didn't know exactly how much pressure there was. Um, and so these were basically just like massive steel balls filled with a bunch of instruments um, that they fired at Venus with a parachute on and hoped for the best. Um <laughs> And at this point, they were beginning to get temperature readings of the planet as well. And it, they eventually discovered that the surface temperature is about 460 degrees C. Um, and that was hot enough to melt the wires of the parachutes. Wow. So this was what was happening was the, the probes were descending through the atmosphere and then the parachute wires were melting through and dropping them onto the to the ground from several kilometers up. Um, they eventually actually used that to to make the parachutes like in the parachutes they had a two-phase parachute and the way that the second phase opened up was that the first phase's wires melted through and then that let the parachute open up much wider um so that it crashed out like it 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 could get through the atmosphere very quickly with a small parachute those wires then melted through and the parachute opened up so it reduced the speed enough that it didn't, you know, become a big pile of bolts on the surface of Venus. But one of the really interesting things about the fact that it's such a hostile and and, and hot planet is when you look at Mercury, you, mm. you would imagine that Mercury would be the the hottest, most ridiculously ferociously scorching um, planet in the solar system, but it's not. But mm. but but Venus is, even though it's it's further from the sun. It's its atmosphere. It's that ninety two atmospheres atmosphere. Because um, it's mostly made up of uh, carbon dioxide. It's about 96, 97% carbon dioxide, um, which, if you've been paying attention, um, you might be aware is a greenhouse gas. Um, <laughs> and on Earth, you know, a couple of percent, right? Uh, like a fraction of a percent rise in carbon dioxide is, is raising temperatures by a couple of degrees. So imagine what an extra 90% carbon dioxide would do. Um, it, it traps the heat on the planet, so the sun's heat on the planet, so it can't escape and, and really raises up the temperature to ridiculous levels. Do you think that um, in, in terms of climate science on Earth, there's there's a lesson to be learned from, from Venus or f- at least from the science of Venus? That's, that's one of the things that um, astronomers uh, currently studying Venus are hoping to learn. So, for instance, there's the uh, Venus Express, which was ESA's uh, mission to to Venus, which I think arrived in the early 2000s. Um, And that was an orbital mission. It wasn't trying to land. Uh, People kind of gave up on that after the 1980s. Um, And it was studying the climate of Venus and how it got to be where it is today. And partly that's, you know, understanding venus as a planet but also because it is such an extreme example if you can understand how venus became the way it is um 
you can understand a lot about how other atmospheres evolved and potentially how our own atmosphere might evolve, which mm. can help, you know, guide climate scientists, um, even if it probably won't give the answers of, of exactly what we can do to, to, to help combat climate change. It at least gives us an idea of what's going on and what might happen. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously been worth talking about the Soviet and the US and, and even mm-hmm. the European missions to Venus. But um, a lot of people might not know that there is actually a, a Japan Space Agency or JAXA mission, um, which is currently still in operation and is studying um, Venus's atmosphere and its clouds. It's called the Akatsuki Orbiter. Um, mm-hmm. And it's still producing beautiful images of Venus. And these are actually v- um, visible on the JAXA website. Um, so if you go to akatsuki.isas.jaxa.jp um, or just search JAXA, J-A-X-A uh, in your internet search bar um, and, you know, Venus images, you should be able to find them. Uh, I've, I was looking at them, at them this morning just before we started recording the podcast and just some absolutely incredible, incredibly beautiful uh, images of Venus. And it's something mm-hmm. that's not really shattered about. I think we are we often... Uh, pay pay a lot of attention to what the Europeans and the Americans are doing in space. Uh, and I don't think um, some of us pay enough attention to what the Japanese are doing in space. And, and those images of Venus are, are absolutely astounding. I, I think Venus also tends to get forgotten. Because um, in the early days, you know, both the US and the Soviets were exploring Venus and Mars equally. Um, but because so much of Venus exploration was done by the Soviets, who had this kind of policy of, of like secrecy, it's it's been forgotten mm. um there's there's a lot of people when you say it's like oh yes we landed on venus um because they did eventually land on venus and they took pictures they even took color pictures from the surface of venus and people don't know that um because it happened 40 years ago um and and the soviets didn't really it, it just it just wasn't shouted about as much as when uh nasa lands on a lands on Mars or sends a rover or something. Um, and it is, it's an incredible planet. Um, and it doesn't get its due, in my opinion. <laughs> um, I suppose that, that might be about to change, though, in the future, because there are a few, um, NASA alone has a few missions planned for future exploration of Venus. And one of the big mm. issues, obviously, because of what we've discussed about its atmosphere uh, and the conditions, is getting electronics to work on such a hostile planet. How can you <laughs> How can you put a rover down that has really delicate electronics and get it to operate. So uh, NASA is um, experimenting with the idea of mechanical robots, which would mm. sort of operate via basic physics. You know, the way like a like a watch operates, sort of, like, you know, a, um, a clock. Um, or they might be looking at, at like a hybrid of something like that um, with uh, also electronics, perhaps even an orbiter around the planet, collecting data and beaming, beaming it back to Earth. Um, it's called the Automaton Rover for Extreme Environments. Um, and it, w- it would operate via l- levers and gears to make the rover move rather than e- electronics. Um, on the NASA website, they described it as steampunk compute- computing, which is quite <laughs> cool. And obviously because of the ridiculous winds um, and the, its, it's um, proximity to the sun, a certain amount of the mechanisms could perhaps be driven by wind turbines or solar panels. Um, so that's that's perhaps something to look out for the next uh, decade or so. Maybe we'll, maybe, you know, the way Juno um, and Cassini um, brought Jupiter and Saturn into focus, respectively. Maybe mm. we'll see a, an amazing 
Venus mission, and that'll make us all realize how amazing that planet is. <laughs> I love that. I always forget that you know, like the very early space missions, um, like most of the early lunar impactors and landers, they were all clockwork. Um, it was before you know electronics had really met their day. It was before the microchip. Um, and sort of as as you're looking, like, why did this mission fail? Oh, because its clockwork timer was mistimed. Um, <laughs> and and now we're going back to that 60 years later. Um, yeah. Sometimes the old ways are the best. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, as I said, Venus is an incredible planet. And, and by the time this podcast goes out, it, it'll just be starting to not really be visible as the in the night sky as the um, days get longer. But there is something else you can look forward to for the rest of the year, which is Mars, because Mars um, is due to reach opposition this autumn. Um, mm. And the red planet's going to be very close to Earth, so it's going to look amazing and definitely one to spot with uh, both the naked eye and binoculars. But uh, a telescope will really tease out some amazing detail and we'll be revealing more about how you can do that in future episodes of the podcast and indeed future issues of the magazine. Uh, and whilst you're out there trying to get a look at Mars, you might also notice something else moving across the night sky. A bright point of light, perhaps even a chain of them. Um, and these are what are called Starlink satellites from this company SpaceX. I spoke to co-presenter of The Sky at Night, Chris Lintot, about what these are and what they mean for the night sky. You recently wrote an article for us in our Cutting Edge column about uh, SpaceX's Starlink mega constellation. So could you tell me what exactly is a mega constellation? Uh, yeah, it sounds like something from an extreme version of Greek mythology, uh, but, <laughs> but, but it's not that. It, it, we're talking about constellation of artificial satellites here. So uh, in that context, constellation is any group of satellites and a mega constellation is a large one. Um, in particular, Starlink is a set of satellites being launched by Elon Musk's SpaceX company um, with the purpose of providing um, new ways to connect uh, to each other, new ways of, of getting broadband via satellite. Um, and there are already more of them in low Earth orbit than there are any other satellites. And so it's um, causing us... Uh, a bit of trouble from the ground. They're being spotted by amateur astronomers. Um, and given that SpaceX have permission, in theory, to launch tens of thousands of these things, um, as a professional astronomy community, we're pretty worried uh, about what having tens of thousands of satellites between us and the things we're trying to study will do to our data. And so how will this affect your ability to be able to take data? Well, the satellites are quite bright. Um, most of them, although maybe we'll talk in a sec about what we might do to reduce this, most of them are sort of magnitude four or five, which is sort of easy naked eye visibility from a dark sky. Um, and so that's pretty bright for uh, anything that a professional telescope might look at. Um, in fact, it's bright enough that in many of the cameras that we use to scan the sky, particularly things that uh, attached telescopes that are doing surveys looking for supernovae or near-Earth asteroids or things like that, it's bright enough that you quite often get ghost images uh, in the lens. So it's not even enough to know where the satellite is and sort of blank out that part of the sky. Um, we think that for um, an average night, um, these things will be visible for sort of three to four hours 
uh, from Masaya Telescope in Chile. Um, and we think about 20% of the images taken by a telescope, like the Vera Rubin Observatory's LSST project, um, we think about 20% of the images will be severely affected. Um, so what that means is that unless we do something about it, it takes us um, sort of 20% longer to get the data that we need. Um, but it also means that people looking for things like near-Earth asteroids um, are going to find it more and more difficult to see the sky beyond uh, these tens of thousands of satellites. Um, and is there anything being done about it at the moment? I think one of the reasons that astronomers, many of my colleagues, got particularly annoyed was that the, uh, the original response, SpaceX just sort of started doing this and launching these things, and the original response was, don't worry about it, satellites can't be seen at night, or don't worry about it, you can put your telescopes in space, which sort of completely misunderstands the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, SpaceX did have launched one satellite with um, special measures taken. I, I think, honestly, I don't think it's much more sophisticated than painting bits of it black, and early reports are that that one is a little bit fainter. Um, these satellites also have a long solar panel and and with satellite viewing um the the it's all about angles so um many people might remember a previous constellation called iridium which had ended up with about 60 satellites but these were famous because they could have very bright flares uh and the flares could be as bright as magnitude minus four as bright as venus has been in the last few weeks uh, and that happened when a particular surface flat surface on the satellite caught the light and reflected it down to earth um so so spacex have also said that they might try and re-angle their satellites once they're at their resting orbits. But if we are in a future where there are these big mega constellations, it's not just SpaceX, there are um, two or three other companies that are interested in doing this, including Amazon, Um, then... And even if you can can sort of disguise the satellites or make them a bit fainter when they're on their final orbits, the size of these constellations where you have tens of thousands of satellites is such that you've almost always got a thousand on their way to their final orbit um, or a thousand or so satellites that are decaying. So it's clear that if these projects go ahead, space is going to get a lot more crowded. And light pollution has been, uh, from more terrestrial sources... Um, has been a big problem for for many years now for astronomy. How does this compare with the kind of general light haze that that we see? Yeah, I mean, we're all all familiar with light pollution because you go outside in a city and look up and you don't get the pristine view of the stars that that many of us would would like. Um, But I think there's two differences between this kind of of pollution and sort of street light pollution. The the first one's the obvious one, which is that you can run and hide from the kind of terrestrial light pollution that we have. So you could go to Astro Camp in the Brecon Beacons or you can put your telescope in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And actually... Um, things are, are, are fine. So um, you can't do that when the source of the light is orbiting above you. Um, I think the second thing um, which is different is that I've been telling a lot of people over the last few years, whenever I can, that you don't actually need a dark sky to enjoy the sky. If we ignore professional astronomy for a second, there's great joy in in stepping outside and looking up and seeing Venus or or looking at a, a, a Mil- the Milky Way, which you know I live within the Oxford Ring Road and I can see the Milky Way uh, here despite the light pollution. Um, and, and there is joy in city night skies, but if you got a 
sort of town night sky that lets you see the Milky Way or lets you see the constellations in, in some detail. You're going to see these things as well. And so you are going to end up, if we go full sci-fi in a few years' time, with a night sky that looks artificial, even to the casual uh, viewer. Um, I'm already getting lots of emails and, and tweets from non-astronomers, people who don't normally look at the night sky, who who want to tell me that they saw something that looked weird last night. And they've seen, what they've mostly seen is this train of Starlink satellites going across the sky one after the other. Um, and for some people, I think that's just quite cool. You now know what it is. It's a bit like waving at the space station as it goes across. For other people... You know, that it's a bit like sticking a billboard uh, saying Coca-Cola on the face of the moon. You know, it does change what you think when you look up. And, and that's not something that we've had to talk about or think about in any great detail before. And why do you think the, the night sky is so important to people? Genuinely, I think it's good for the soul to pay attention. I think a lot of people have found that in the last few um, few months as we, we've endured this slightly strange situation that lots of us are in. Um, just watching um, Venus sink towards the western horizon as the nights have worn on has been, has been good, or, or spotting the moon come around. We had that great conjunction between the moon and Venus a, a while ago. Seeing the, the night sky, I think, tells you, makes you feel something of our presence on the surface of a, a planet within this great universe that we all enjoy talking about. Um, and I think if you lose that sense of wilderness that you get by looking up, um, then, we, then we've all lost something. I think um, you know, people travel, um, people used to travel, uh, to, to, to spend time in nature, right? You go to the Lake District or to the Alps or to the Atacama Desert, wherever it is, to, to have a moment um, away from the cares of everyday living. And I think the night sky gives you that without the travel. You can look up and be in the wilderness. Lots of us have had that sort of sort of experience. Um, and, and Starlink and other projects like it threaten that. From a professional astronomy point of view, so that's the sort of romantic view, um, don't scribble on my night sky. The very practical <laughs> view is, uh, yes, okay, I care about getting my data for galaxies, but one of the reasons we scan the night sky with these surveys is to detect near-Earth asteroids. On the last programme, we talked to uh, the team in, in at Queen's University, Belfast, and, and elsewhere, um, who are using a, a series of telescopes called Atlas to try and discover near-Earth asteroids. Um, and you do that... The dangerous ones often come from the direction of the sun, so the important data is taken um, sort of early in the evening, and that's exactly the time when this sort of satellite pollution is at its worst. Um, so you either can go from my romantic view that we we need to have a spiritual experience looking at the sky, or you want to find the asteroid that might hit the Earth and do serious damage. Either way, um, we should be slightly worried about the, these things. Well, whichever way uh, our listeners look at it, I hope they take the time to look up at the night sky tonight. Um, maybe they'll see a Starlink satellite, maybe they won't. But either way, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. That was Chris Nintot. Find out more about the effects of Starlink in the June issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. June is a challenging time for astronomy as the nights get shorter. But while you wait for the skies to get dark and the first planets and stars to appear, there are always noctilucent clouds, or NLCs, to keep watch for. These may be seen between 90 minutes or two hours after sunset, low above the northwest horizon, or a similar time before sunrise, low above the northeast horizon. NLCs are clouds of icy dust that form at a high altitude on the edge of space, around 76 to 85 kilometres high, during the summer months. 
although they won't actually appear every night. Because they are so high up, NLCs are illuminated by the sun long after it has set, and we see them as blue-white swirls, curls, and tendrils shining in the sky. Possibly best suited to weekend viewing if you can get a clear view of the northwest or northeast horizon from your home. See if you can spot them. And you can find out more about not-to-lucent clouds in the June issue of BBC Sky Night magazine, or by visiting our website, skynightmagazine.com, and searching for not-to-lucent clouds in the search bar at the top of the homepage. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about observing noctilucent clouds in the June issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also preview the annular eclipse that will be visible in Africa, the Middle East and Asia on the 21st of June. Find out what astronomy you can do during the daytime and how to do it safely, and explain how to make your own LED torch pointer. And not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky and Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. 